Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 15 and going to the end of the passage, into the chapter. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Why is the world a bad place? A place of suffering, frustration, and misery. And what needs to take place for some kind of alleviation to happen? That compound question is really at the heart of the entire business of man that we call religion. If the world were, in the words of Douglas Adams, a good and happy place, and man wasn't, quote, miserable for pretty much all the time, end quote, religion as a thing wouldn't really happen. But universally, mankind acknowledges most people are miserable, and the world is, in fact, a bad place, a place of suffering, frustration, and misery. 
If you go to Tibet and ask a man in Tibet what the world is like, he will generally answer in that way. If you go to Madagascar and you ask a person there in Madagascar what is the world like, they will tell you it tends to the miserable, it tends to the frustrated, to the, to the evil, to the bad. So it is a universal desire in humanity, and it makes perfect sense, to have that alleviated. Why is this happening and what can be done about it? That brings us to the business of religion. But the answers of man's religion are in no way unified. In the world today, there remains effectively three very big, broad families of religion, and their answers to why is the world a bad place and what should be done about it are, are radically different. There is a family of religion known as the animistic religions, and they're still very much alive and practiced throughout the world. And the answer that animism gives, and again, I'm painting with a very broad brush because there are many animistic religions, but painting with a broad brush, the answer is the reason why the world is a bad place filled with misery and frustration and such is because the world is way too crowded. Animism postulates that just like you and I have a spirit, Every animal has a spirit, and every element has a spirit. Every rock, every tree, every lake, every place, every event, in many cases, all have a spirit. We are in a world of spirits. Effectively, spirits are equal, and it is just really way too crowded of a place. We are constantly bumping into other spirits, and we offend them. And the reason why sickness and death and frustration and badness happen is because we've stepped accidentally on a spirit, and they've gotten back at us. And the way to make things better is to somehow placate the spirits. That's the answer. There are a few things that stand out to me in that answer, though. Uh, on the one hand, I'm kind of curious where all these spirits came from, uh, what supports them, what's their origin. Uh, I'm not even sure that rocks and trees have spirits. You're going to have to sell me on that. And even if this entire uh, scenario is true, it makes the suffering and the frustration and the misery very, very subjective. I am a spirit. There's all those spirits out there. I offend a spirit. The spirit strikes at me. But we're spirits, right? I mean, we're equal spirits. And in animism, even the gods, if they are considered to exist, are just more powerful spirits. So... I get hurt, bad things happen to me because I've offended a spirit, which is really just kind of like me. So there's not a lot of justice in that. It's really kind of more the world of tooth and claw, and there really is no right or wrong. It's just i got to avoid bumping into spirits. But that's the answer. That's the animistic answer. In the Eastern religions, 
Uh, the answer to the question is that desire and self-awareness create suffering. If all desire and self-awareness would be extinguished, suffering would come to an end. Again, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but if you look at Eastern religions, that's really what they're saying together. They're saying it in harmony. Um, Suffering happens to beings that know they're in existence. Suffering happens to beings that have a desire. So let's get rid of desire and let's get rid of self-awareness and we will get rid of misery, suffering, and frustration. Um, Again, I have some cutouts here. Desire does lead to suffering in many occasions. But I've also found that desire can lead to joy. I have found that not all desires end in tears. Some of them end in absolute satisfaction. And I'm not sure I want to get rid of my desires. They seem to motivate me to some positive things. Also, um, the only way this question can be asked, you know, how do we deal with this, is by a self-aware self. If I cease to have a self-aware self, I really can't wrestle with the issue, but that's where you want me to go. You want me to go into nirvana. You want me to go into the Brahman, where I cease to have a personal existence. Um, You can't be religious if you aren't at all. And more than that, there is the inherent contradiction that for me to embrace the desire to be free of suffering, misery, and pain, I have to have the desire to pursue that. So I have to get rid of my desire to pursue any alleviation for alleviation to take place. But the moment I let go of my desire, I stop pursuing it, and it doesn't happen. So ultimately, there is an incredible disconnect here um, alleviation of the world's suffering is completely beyond my grasp because I literally can't do this. Every Buddhist I have ever known has had to really wrestle with this. I am supposed to get rid of every desire. I am to have no desire at all, including the desire to get rid of desires. What am I going to do? So that's the answer, though. That's the Eastern answer to why there's suffering and misery in the world. Paul is not writing to people who embrace those answers, though. He is writing to people who embrace the answer of what we might so-call the Western religions. And the Western religions do tend to agree on the point I'm about to make. The reason why there is misery, suffering, frustration, and badness in the world is because there is a God, there is one ultimate other, one supreme being, and this God, this other, has created the world, and on the basis of his creation, he owns the world. Because of this, he has the right to say what will happen in the world, and we have offended him. Unlike the animist who is afraid to bump into a spirit in every direction, 
Um, there's only one spirit that we really have to, to consider, but we have offended him. He was in existence before creation. He brought creation about. It's owned by him. He has the right to say what happens in it. Because if it's your property, you have the right to say what happens to it. Well, everything we see, touch, smell, and hear is his, and we have offended him, and that is why the world is filled with suffering, frustration, and misery. Why are people born just to die? Why do terribly awful things happen in the world? Why are most people miserable? It's because we have offended the one true God. That is Christianity's answer to the question, without cutout, and it's most satisfying to me. It seems to me that reality has to have a ground of being. There is a universe of causality. Everything is caused by something. It has to go back to a non-caused cause, one cause, And I come into the world and I have a perception of good and evil, right and wrong. I'm able to talk about the fact I'm miserable, which means that I'm able to perceive misery and happiness. I'm able to perceive uh, justice and injustice. And under those other questions, under those other answers, I really can't do that, but I do do that. And so I find this to be the most satisfying answer. I am a Christian. I believe that the reason the world is filled with suffering, pain, and frustration is God cursed us, and we deserve it. That religion is universal is a testimony to the fact that this sense of suffering, frustration, and misery is universal. There has literally never been a society found in the world that was devoid of religion. It doesn't mean everybody in those societies practiced religion, but religion was very important to every society that has ever been found, both currently existing and the ones we dig out of the ground. There has literally been no human group that has been devoid of religion. When I was in high school... My uh, world humanities professor put on a BBC documentary for us one day, and it was a documentary about a tribe in northern Luzon in the Philippines that had just recently been discovered, and what was amazing about them was that uh, they had no concept of religion and no concept of a supreme being no concept of an afterlife. They were totally devoid of any of that. Their language didn't even include words for it. And as you can imagine, the BBC was all over that. They, they were amazed at this, and so they sent in their crews and they made the documentary. We watched it, and you know it's a Stone Age tribe living in huts, that sort of thing. And then after it was turned off, uh, the professor said, well, what did you think about this? And uh, you know, we gave our answers. We had a little bit of talk, and then he said what would you think if I told you this was completely and utterly fake? And we were all very quiet. And he said, because it is completely and utterly fake. 
What had happened was the Marcos government was in a dispute with the Roman Catholic Church over a number of political issues, and the Marcos government in the Philippines wanted to undercut Rome's authority. And so Marcos, being the brilliant, utter scoundrel he was, took a bunch of actors into the jungles in northern Luzon and created this village. He created it lock, stock, and barrel and brought in anthropologists to go look at it. And for a couple months, he fooled them. But you can't do that at length. It's going to fall apart. And that's what happened. Somebody talked, and I'm surprised it took as long as it did. Uh, Even the BBC got caught believing this, but it was an utter lie. There has never been a human group ever found devoid of religion. But as we have just seen, humanity isn't quite sure why it's miserable. It isn't sure why it's suffering. Spurgeon spoke once of being called to the bedside of a man who was dying. The man had been... uh, fairly upstanding in the community, had been a basically good guy, but they had called for the local preacher. He had never been particularly religious, so they called for Spurgeon, who didn't you know, really know him, but that's what you do, right? So Spurgeon approached his bedside and asked the man, now that you are standing literally at God's door, uh, would you like to make peace with God? And the man looked at him and blinked, and in true confusion said, make peace with God, I, I was unaware we had quarreled. And he was unaware, although his misery, his suffering, and his dissolution was all around him, his knowledge of why that was, was completely lost. As a group, as a church, You and I make some very significant confession about what we believe about this. In the Heidelberg Catechism, in question two, after we have confessed the essence of the gospel, we then ask the question, how many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort, in the gospel, in the comfort of the gospel, for you to know that in this comfort, you may live and die happily. So there's a good news, a promise of Christ. It's being held out, but you have to know a few things to be able to apprehend it. What do you need to know? Well, the answer is three things. First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a redemption. So we confess to the world, to one another, and to God that if you don't really know why you are miserable, why you are weak, why you are frail, why you are are broken, you can't really lay hold of the good news. You have to know that answer. And then in the very next catechism question we ask, from where do you know your misery? And the answer is the law of God. Now, I know I'm miserable. Every human being generally does. But I don't really know why. 
Well, according to our confession, what we tell the world and what we promise God we believe, the answer can be found, it's found in the law of God. It's an appropriate place to find it. Think about what we have just said when we say the law of God. If there is a law then there is an authority that can give that law. If it's a law, it's based upon something just. An unjust law is no law, says Augustine, and he's absolutely right. A law is just, and it's just because it's, it's, it's on an authority, and it's on the authority of an owner. Just like... The, the, the scriptures teach, just like Christianity begins, um, the reason why God has the right to give a law is because everything that you see, hear, touch, taste, and feel literally belongs to him, and he has the right to make a law about it. That's inherent in the term law. Uh, and laws come from kings. Kings are the ones that have the authority to make laws, and kings are in covenant with you. You have covenanted to be their people. They have covenanted to be your king. Um, All of that is absolutely inherent in the very phrase, law of God. If, If you don't have that, you don't have a law. You might have a code of conduct. You might have an imposed outer, uh, despotism. But without these things I'm talking about, you can't have a law. And so in our confession, when we say, where do we find out why it is we're miserable and frustrated and, and heartbroken and all that good stuff, uh, we find out in the law of God. It tells us. And laws, when you break them, what is it you are doing? How would you define breaking a law? Well, the legal language for that is you transgress a law. You, you have, have gone against that law, you have, have, have broken it by transgression, and that's what triggers the penalty, the suffering, the misery, the wrong, that sort of thing. Well, that brings us to what our apostle is talking about in the passage today. In chapter 3 and verse 19, the apostle says this, What purpose, then, does the law serve? We're talking about the law. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. There's our term. Transgressions have been taking place. The law has been added because of these transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Um, That part we'll deal with on another Lord's Day. But for right now, uh, Paul brings us to the law of God. He's been talking about it, but now he focuses directly down on it. Uh, The law is out there. God gave it. In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, there's a huge chunk of that book, which talks about when God gave it, uh, why do you do that? Why do you, why do you give the law? Well, Paul says it was added because of transgressions. 
So in saying this, Paul is letting us know, again, a few things that have to be inherent for him to to use these words. First, transgressions have to be happening. Uh, Paul says the law was added because of transgressions, so the transgressions are before the addition. Transgressions are taking place, so God lays the law out because of them. The law is to make them known, which means that they aren't particularly known without it. So you've got breaking of the law happening, and people aren't really knowing exactly how that's working. The law is going to show them. The law is written. It's black and white. It's, it's on paper, or originally it's on stone. Uh, it's studyable. It's systemizable. It's contemplatable. You can think about it. Uh, the law will show what, where, why, and how these, quote, transgressions are taking place. So you're living in ignorance. You are a miserable person, born to die, suffering from betrayal and, and heartbreak and bitterness and, and just all the evil things that, that we're all enmeshed in. Um, you don't know why. Well, it's because of transgressing. And God gives a law and says, here's a law, I want you to look into it. You're going to see why all these penalties are happening. You're transgressing against me, right? So it's, it's very straightforward. Uh, but you begin to think about that, and you begin to realize Paul doesn't just talk about law and transgression here. He also does in a very famous passage in Romans, in Romans chapter 4, and this is what he says there. In Romans 4, verse 13 through 15, he writes this. The promise... Four, thirteen. 13, yeah. Um, yeah, there we go. Um... Uh, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made no effect. And this is the most important verse. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So think about that for a second. If there is no law at all, then the adding of a law after the transgression, uh, how does that work? Because you have to have the law in place to transgress it. So what's going on here? Well, let's go back to the beginning. If you go back to the uh, creation, if you go back to the creation of man, To Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 through 28, this is is what we hear, this is literally what mankind hears at the very beginning of its existence. Verse 24 through 28. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, Cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, 
and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the first thing God said, the moment Adam had ears to hear. Uh, What's going on there? Well, we're watching creation, we're watching God create everything, and so he is the owner of it, he has the right to say what happens to it. When he created the cattle and such, he didn't talk to them, but he talked to man, and he assigned man a purpose. If you want to be crass about it, he, quote, put man in his place, end quote. Now, we almost always use that phrase in a negative sense. Either I've had a run-in with somebody and, by gosh, I put him in his place, or somebody has just walked on me and, well, I guess they put me in my place. We don't like being put in our place, right? I mean, very rarely does that ever get said. He put me in my place. I'm so glad about that. You'll never hear anybody say that. Well, God put man in his place, Except that this is a very positive thing. God is assigning man a purpose and a reason to exist more than just it's good. Animals, they exist because it's good, and that's it. But God assigned man a purpose. It's good for him to have a purpose. And he assigned him a purpose, which meant that God did not, when man was first created, look down and say, What do you guys want to do? That is totally, totally the opposite of what God said to the first man. God spoke from a position of authority. He spoke from a position of having created. And he said, this is what you're going to do. This is a covenant happening. A greater and a lesser are in covenant. And the greater is speaking to the lesser... And the greater is not giving the lesser suggestions, he's giving him commands. You will have dominion over the earth, you will fill the earth, you will do what I say, and that's kind of the key of the passage. Underlying what's going on here is the very clear presupposition God has the right to tell man whatever he wants to tell him. Man is created to be his under-shepherd. The over-shepherd can speak anytime he wants and say to the under-shepherd, I want you to do this, and that's the nature of their relationship. God doesn't come and ever ask man, what do you think about this? You You think you ought to do that? I'm open to your suggestions. Totally is not the relationship. So, 
what is man to do? He's literally to do whatever God tells him, because that's the covenant. And if you go further into Genesis, if you go up to, say, chapter 17 in Genesis, the very first verse is, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. So what does that encompass? I am your God, and there is a cause and effect here. Since I am your God, there is something that's going to be expected of you. That expectation is that you will be blameless. How sweeping is that statement? How obedient do you have to be to be blameless? Can you be partially obedient? Can you be sort of a servant and be told you're blameless? I mean, the answer is obvious. Blameless is total. I am the Lord your God, Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. I am God. I am the greater in the covenant. I have given a law. What does my law subsist of? It subsists of you doing absolutely everything I tell you, how I tell you to do it, when I tell you to do it, in absolute perfection. That's the law. It's a long time, though, after what God had said to Abraham in chapter 15. In chapter 15, God had said this to him in 15 and verse 6. Well, he didn't say it to him. It's what happened, and it's what Scripture says. And Abraham, the New King James says in he, but it's a reference to Abraham. And he believed in the Lord... And he accounted it to him for righteousness. So in chapter 17, God is saying to Abraham, what I expect out of you is absolute perfection. You are to obey my every word. In chapter 15, God sees that Abraham has faith. This faith is received by God so that it is accounted to him as, quote, righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, you can, you can uh, state it as walking before the Lord and being blameless. In 15, God looks at Abraham as blameless. In 17, he says, now walk before me and be blameless. Abraham is told, walk before me and be blameless a very long time after Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God said, Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first promise of Christ. Theologically, we call it the proto-evangelion, which is a very pompous way of saying the first giving of the gospel. God has made a promise of the seed that will step on the devil's head, Uh, What do you do with promises? You believe them. Well, going going up 12 chapters, we see a man who believes God. God has spoken. And God uh, equates that as righteous. 
because he's been relating to man on the basis of promise ever since chapter 3. And Abraham believes God, and he is considered righteous. This is all second covenant stuff. But in chapter 17, long after this, God talks to him in first covenant language, I am the Lord your God, walk before me and be blameless. So why is God talking to Abraham, the man of faith, the man who is redeemed by faith, the man who is uh, said to be the father of faith, why is God talking to him in first covenant language? Well, let me ask you a question. We've been going through Galatians, kind of moseying, but we've been going through it for quite some time. We know that Jesus Christ is our substitution. He will righteously, perfectly walk before God and be blameless. He will keep the first covenant for us, and we are in Him. He is our substitution. Uh, Let's think about some of the implications of that. If that is the truth, then are we absolutely, radically, teetotally, without any equivocation, utterly free of the first covenant? If Jesus Christ keeps the first covenant for us, and that is our redemption, then are we radically utterly, without any connection at all, free of the first covenant? The answer is no. We are freed from its penalty. We are freed from being under it, but that's because Christ keeps it for us. There is still a connection. When God judges us on the last day, what will the judgment be based on? Well, according to the Bible, from cover to cover, it's going to be based on whether you have walked before the Lord and been blameless. Any outstanding sin before a holy God, any at all, known or unknown, as we prayed, um, any sin is going to have us condemned to hellfire. So is it absolutely, radically without any invocation, um, can it be said that we will be judged completely devoid of works? Again, the answer is no. You will be judged on the basis of works. You will be judged on the basis of Jesus Christ's works. These have been substituted for your works. But you're going to be based, it's going to be based on works you are going to own the works of Jesus Christ. And God is going to look at you and he is going to say, on the basis of the works you own, on the basis of your walking before me and being blameless because you own Christ having done that, uh, I'm going to let you into my heaven because my son has substituted for you. Um, If the first covenant didn't exist... Could the second covenant even have an existence? The answer again is no. The entire purpose of the second covenant in Christ is to redeem a fallen mankind 
which has fallen in the first covenant. So there's an intimate connection between the covenants. Um, is there any alleviation from the effects of the first covenant without the second covenant? Again, the, the answer is no. The first covenant and the second covenant are so intertwined that you cannot just have the second covenant. Christ Jesus saves you from sins. What are sins? Well, according to 1 John chapter 3, sin is transgression of the law. You can't have any transgressions if there is no law. And now in Galatians, Paul is saying, now the law was given because of transgressions. So there has to be the law in existence before it is, quote, given to show us that we've broken it. The law predates Moses because the essence of the law is, I'm God and I tell you what to do and you will do it perfectly. Imagine if a child you had came to you, most of you are parents, and the child had been thinking, and he said, you know, Mom, Dad, I'm supposed to obey you. What is everything you want me to do? Did you ever look at your children and lay out everything you expected of them? Teetotally? I'm betting probably not. Now, I know a few of you and it probably came close. But most of you, probably not. The relationship was they were supposed to do what you told them, and you knew what you wanted from them, but you would tell them from time to time what it was, and they were supposed to do it. But now you have been given an opportunity to tell them literally everything that is your will concerning them for all time and space. Imagine if you did that. Now, this is not new. They have always known you have a will, and they're supposed to obey it. Now, you are literally laying out for them, line upon line, chapter upon chapter, verse upon verse, this is everything I want from you in total. I think that would be a monumental turning point in your relationship. Imagine if you were perfectly righteous, holy, and just. You are completely devoid of any wickedness at all. You are the flaming source of all righteousness and goodness. And you tell your children what it is you want to see them do. Every last thing. That's what Paul's talking about. The giving of the law at Sinai was not giving as in it didn't exist before. It was God saying, let me tell you what I want from you. When I tell you to walk before me and be blameless, this is what I mean. And he lays out every precept of goodness, every precept of righteousness, it rolls through the, the books of Moses. It rolls through the Sermon on the Mount. It is overwhelming. And so it should be. 
When I was in Bible college, I was told the story of a man who had gone to church all of his life, but he had really not kind of grasped how truly holy God was. And a young buck from the Bible college had gone out, and he was preaching the Ten Commandments. He was preaching Exodus 20. And the man had walked in kind of fairly assured, and when he walked out, he walked out kind of stunned, and you could see on his face he had had revelations galore, and he turned to somebody beside him and said, I sure I'm glad I didn't create any graven images, except he had. He had failed to get what was being said there. The law is totality. The law is righteousness. It is beaming with perfection. And God gave it to the people who had been given the promise of Christ. Abraham is the father of faith, right? I mean, we're hearing about that right here. Abraham was given the promise. He was made righteous before God by faith. And yet his people were given the law. Why are they given the law? It's because without the law we don't realize we've quarreled with God. Without the law, we're really glad we didn't make any graven images. Without the law, we are our worst judges, and we think we're pretty good. And then God shows us what righteousness is, and the blazing glory of perfection fries our understanding of our goodness to an absolute crisp. And we suddenly realize, I desperately need the second covenant. That's what verse 16 and 17 of our passage is about. We read there, going back to to Galatians chapter 3, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as to one, uh, as a, and, and to your seed, who is Christ, Christ is what the law points to. And the law cannot supersede the promise of Christ. And Paul says this overtly. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. It points to Christ, it doesn't annul Christ, but brother, it shows you you need Christ. You think there's a shred of goodness in you. You think someday you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and God's going to look at you and say, you know, you're a treasure. I want you. Then you look at the law. And the law says the blood of Jesus Christ is absolutely required for you to be in any standing with God whatsoever, when, when you hear that the first covenant is broken, it is broken to utter shreds. The way George Whitfield put it, in my most holiest and profound prayer, there are 10,000 sins to damn me to hell. And he was not speaking in hyperbole. When you look at the law, your holiest, holiest motivation is devilish. When you look at the law, your highest attribute is vice. 
When you look at the law, you are reduced to shambles, and you're reduced to shambles not as Luther would say, this is so high and holy that you'll never make it, God wanted to scare you, because he really does kind of say that. You're reduced to shambles because this really is what God wants from you. The law really is holy, righteous, and good. It really is. If you were holy, righteous, and good, your every thought, word, and deed would match this law. And it doesn't. The law existed before God laid it out for you. And when he shows it to you, you turn to Christ. And the promise in Christ was before the giving of the law. The law doesn't annul that. The law drives you to that, and that is an utter grace. The law is not grace, but the law is a fire to burn your feet and fry your back until you run to grace and cry for the the water that will quench the fiery burning of your imperfections. 